Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Mostly sunny skies. Welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, we check in with Spelman College President Mary Schmidt-Campbell to discuss the college's fall semester plan. The medical data, the preventive data, the looking at the physical resources that we had available, those were the things that we analyzed to come up with our plan. That conversation is just ahead. But first, the number of COVID-19 related deaths in Georgia surpassed 3,000 on Sunday. In fact, as of this broadcast, it's 3,001. In addition, more than 2,500 new COVID-19 cases were confirmed on Sunday. The Georgia Department of Public Health reports there are 116,926 confirmed COVID-19 cases in the state in total. And 13,259 people are hospitalized. Of that number, more than 2,600 are ICU admissions. This, of course, is all according to the Georgia Department of Health. Some of you have actually emailed me and asked, why do we do these numbers every day? Well, here on Closer Look and at WABE, we feel the numbers are important for you, the public, to be aware. And that's what we do. In other news, the clerk's office at the Gwinnett County Justice and Administration Center is closed to the public for the next two weeks. This comes after a deputy clerk tested positive for the coronavirus. Now, Gwinnett officials say the deputy clerk typically interacted with the public and they have notified individuals who had direct contact with the clerk. Now, right now, that clerk is reportedly on leave and will not be allowed to return to work until cleared by a doctor. The county satellite office, located at the Gwinnett County Detention Center, will continue normal operations. Now, the main office will reopen to the public on July 27th. Meanwhile, Georgia Power is giving customers until this week to sign up for a payment plan to catch up on unpaid electric bills. Georgia Power and other utilities companies put a moratorium on disconnections in March due to the pandemic. Well, that moratorium ends on Wednesday. After that, payments will be due on time again. And finally, funeral services for eight-year-old Sequoia Turner, who was fatally shot on the night of July 4th, is scheduled for this week. The Turner family says the general public can pay their respects at a viewing Tuesday from 9 a.m. until 6 p.m. at Murray Brothers Funeral Home. This will also be streamed online, and a private service will be held Wednesday. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Educating in the COVID-19 era continues. From kindergarten to college, America's schools, institutes, colleges, and universities, well, some are just weeks away from the start of the fall academic school year. But for those institutions of higher education, it means some tough decisions as to how many people should even be allowed on campus, let alone a lecture hall or a lab. Well, for Spelman College, the 2021 academic year will begin like no other in the school's history. Recently, the the college's board of trustees approved a reopening plan called Spelman's Path Forward. And joining me now with more about the plan and the phases, President Dr. Mary Schmidt-Campbell. As always, President Campbell, I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. Oh, it's good to be here, Rose. Thank you for inviting me. You know, I was thinking back to when... I had a conversation with you and then President of Oglethorpe, President Larry Shaw, and you all were just reflecting on this moment for higher education and the pandemic. And you both were optimistic at the time that, you know, maybe we'll get through this. Now, some months later, what's your observation? It's been disturbing to see 
that our country at large, among all other countries, seems to be struggling the most at really harnessing this virus. I think the expectation was that by summer, uh, we would start to see a decline and eventually a flattening as we moved into opening our schools. And now it seems as though, particularly for the South, just the opposite is happening. We have an increase in hospitalizations, in infections, and in deaths right here in Georgia, and specifically right here in Fulton County, and specifically in the Black community in Fulton County. I know that sometimes politics and higher education, maybe they those are two roads that you don't want to meet. But in your opinion, as someone who is a leader in a institution that educates, but you also have to consider their well-being. Do you think that whether it's from the federal level or the state level, that there's been a failure in preparation to slow the transmission of this virus? I I think beginning with the recognition that it was a threat in the first place, uh, there clearly was a hesitancy or a reluctance or a sluggishness in this country. And that came, that came from all sectors. It, it, I mean, all sectors. If you go back and you look at the quotes of mayors, governors, federal legislators, everybody, even some medical experts. I mean, in the beginning, if you can imagine, people were saying, don't wear a mask. It doesn't matter. So um, I I think we had an extraordinarily slow response at the outset as a country. But from the time that we saw the rapid rise in New York City, That was like a red flag that was waving across the country and said, look what will happen Mm -hmm. if we don't take action fast. And to their credit, the the state of New York, the city of New York, everybody mobilized against that to, to, to yank that down. And you would have thought then, ah, now our country has a model Mm -hmm. of how we can behave and the steps that we can take to, to really get in front of this. And then we didn't. <laughs> That's the thing that truly I find shocking. Hmm. President Campbell, on average, what's a typical yearly enrollment for Spelman? About 2,000 students, just over 2,000 students. In a July 1st letter to the Spelman College community, you wrote, I'm going to quote you here, Our decision was grounded in months of analyzing data, the outcomes of the decisions of other institutions, and the daily changing guidance from organizations like the Centers for Disease and Prevention and the Georgia Department of Health, close quote. So first, let's talk about this data that was analyzed. What was the information you all wanted in order to make a decision about how to reopen in just a few weeks here? So so the first was, what does it take to have a healthy community, what I call a a congregate uh, community. That's a a community where people are gathering. Mm -hmm. Well, you should have um, mandatory baseline testing. Um, Our data uh, indicated that uh, periodic testing, once the baseline was established, was important, daily screening. And you had to have an environment where everybody, it was mandatory for everybody to wear masks and everybody to be socially distanced. Now, when you got when we got to that observation, we realized Spelman College is only 39.4 acres big. That's a tiny little space when you compare it to Georgia Tech, which is 400 acres, or even Clark Atlanta University, which is 100 acres. That's mm-hmm. three times our size almost. So you look at the size of the campus, look at the size of our residence halls, and we determine, look at the size of our classrooms. We just made a, a, a calculation in order for us to just to maintain social distancing. We had to have a very low density population, maybe only 25% at max 30% of our normal workforce and student body. Mm-hmm. And so that the medical data, the preventive data, the just the, the um, looking at uh, the physical resources that we had available, Those were the things that we analyzed to come up with our plan. And I'm curious, was also the uncertainty of another outbreak on campus, possibly, that could have occurred in the late fall? Did you take that in consideration too? 
Yes, we, we, we certainly did take that into consideration. We, and, and we took it into consideration as the Atlanta University Center. So in point of fact, we said, okay, if in fact surges, a surge at that time, when back when we were first started planning, a surge would be most likely during flu season, then you wanna compress the academic calendar so your students are gone by the time flu season is in full swing. Mm -hmm. uh, but you also wanted to limit the capacity for your students to travel. Uh, so all international travel uh, quite obviously has been eliminated, but also we've eliminated the, uh, the breaks and holidays within which students would normally travel. So Labor Day holiday mm -hmm. is gone. Fall break, gone. Thanksgiving, you go home and everybody stays home. And so this means for a compressed calendar where students uh, have virtually no travel unless it's absolutely mm -hmm. necessary. And if they do have to leave campus when they come back, they have to go through the whole protocol of testing, of being retested and having a, a negative COVID test in order to get back on and so right now you all are in phase one, correct? Which is the planning right of now, how you are reopening. Yes. Right now we're in phase one. And phase one says we can only bring back about 629 students. And so that's roughly the, the first year class. So we'll mm -hmm. bring back the first year class. And there are a few other categories that we're going to bring back along with that. And everybody else, which is three quarters of the college almost, is going to be online. So we have a, what we call a hybrid low density option. Now, if you read that plan, it also says in the plan that we are watching the trends, the national trends and the local trends, the state trends very carefully. And if there is a dramatic change in those trends that tell us that the environment is not safe, mm -hmm. we'd be prepared to pivot and to change that to exclusively online. Dr. Campbell, if a first year student has a health condition or even just health concerns, can they opt for online instruction only? They certainly can. In fact, one of the things again that you'll see in the plan is we, we, we are asking everyone to do a risk assessment. And we have a, a sort of at home risk assessment that you can do, it's private. You don't give it to us, but you take it so that you can understand if, in fact, you are someone who's experiencing any of these conditions or fall into any of these categories, you may be high risk. So that if you do uh, contract the virus, you would be at high risk for a serious illness or possibly even death. And so we're asking people to make that, that assessment. And for those 600 plus students who will come to the campus this fall and for your faculty and staff, are you all mandating the wearing of a mask or some type of facial covering mandatory all the time, except maybe when eating or in your own dorm room or, or office? Yes. So if you were to come to Spelman College today, the first thing you would see is a big sign. It says mask mandatory. <laughs> it's already up. And we've already started the testing of all of our employees. Um, I think I was there for, uh, we're doing, getting the testing done at Morehouse School of Medicine. I was over there on Friday to get my test. My husband and I were there to get our test. And uh, already 200 of our employees had been through. So uh, any employee who has plans to come back to campus, um, faculty or staff, can get their test for free at Morehouse School of Medicine. And Often because Spelman, Morehouse, and Clark Atlanta, you're all a part of the AUC, students sometimes take classes at other institutions. Have you, you all had to change that at all, or it will just be online? So most of our, we, we've designed it, so most of our first year classes uh, are, will be taken with our own faculty. So, so because we're limiting it to first year, we have very limited need for students to have to go to another campus. But I would add very quickly that all the health protocols that we have implemented are exactly the same health protocols that have been adopted by not only Morehouse School of Medicine, but Morehouse College and Clark Atlanta mm -hmm. University. Dr. Campbell, due to these changes, is there a reduction in tuition and fees for the students? 
Yes, there is. There, there, we thought about that very, very carefully. And we know that uh, managing COVID has been really a harsh experience for families in the Black community. And so we have, we thought very carefully about how, what we could do as a college to help out. So first off, we froze tuition. Just right off the bat, tuition for everybody, whether they're here in person or online is frozen. For those who opt online mm -hmm. as a one-time discount, we're also uh, discounting our tuition by 10%. Um, I wish it could be more, uh, but as I look around the country and I look at other colleges and universities, many of them are not giving discounts at all. But we thought that it was extremely important to have this gesture for our students. This is something that not only Spelman, but pretty much every other institution of higher learning is dealing with. The flip side of that, you all will see a dramatic decrease in revenue and money coming in. What's the projected loss here for you all? If we go with having about 600 first-year students here on campus with room and board, and everybody else online, we will take a $14 million hit in revenue. So what that has meant is deep cuts in our operations. It's meant furloughs and we've tiered those so that those at the lower salary end have five days to those at the upper end have 15 days of furlough. That's un unpaid leave. They've, you know, everybody still gets their benefits but that's unpaid uh, leave. Uh, we've cut utilities, we've cut um, all kinds of expenses. As I said, completely eliminated all but the most necessary travel. So um, it has been quite an experience of belt tightening here mm. at Spelman. Have you taken a pay cut, Dr. Campbell? I certainly have. I have no problem with that. I, I that's what we have to do in order to make this incredibly great institution survive, then this is what we do. Uh, we're also looking at this affirmatively. And by that, I mean, uh, we've been working now for several years in developing us other sources of revenue for the college other than our tuition income. And we're, we're predominantly reliant on tuition income. Um, but we've been looking at other sources of revenue that might help mitigate that dependence. And so one of the areas that we, we have worked on very hard is being able to offer courses online. Now, mm -hmm. up to now, we've only offered those courses to our own students here at Spelman or within the Atlanta University Center. But when I first came here, we had maybe 60 students who were taking online courses during the summer. Mm -hmm. This past summer, we had 500 students. Wow. And that's because we tripled the number of courses we offered. And all of them were great courses with high enrollments. And they, they over well for the future. Because our intent now is to be able to offer courses in January of 2021 to populations other than our students outside of Spelman with the idea that uh, we could develop a source of income for ourselves that enabled us to then support the college and subsidize our students and our operations here at the college. And I feel very optimistic about that. You mean I could finally get a chance to take a class from the wonderful Beverly Guy Sheftall? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'll tell Beverly that right now. <laughs> if you're just joining this conversation, I'm joined by Spelman College President Mary Schmidt Campbell, and we're talking about the institution's phase plan to welcome back some students, faculty, and staff to the campus. Now, this conversation will continue in just a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cf.com. 
greateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott, and we pick up our conversation with Spelman College President Dr. Mary Schmidt-Campbell on the school's phase reopening plan called Spelman's Path Forward. Let's talk about another segment of your student population. As you know, uh, the Trump administration is a major change in the student and exchange visitor program coming from the White House saying that foreign students must attend in-person classes or, quite frankly, they have to leave the country. How many Spelman students could this possibly affect by this rule? And what's your take on it? I know that you sent out a letter to the Spelman community. Yeah. Boy, that that, that was a surprise. Uh, we have about 10 international students. So our population isn't high. Mm-hmm. But what's significant about those 10, we have several students who are from countries who are not accepting anyone coming in and are not permitting uh, anyone to leave the, the country because of coronavirus. These students literally have no place to go. And if, frankly, even if they did have a place to go, even if their countries were letting them back in, that is, that is such uh, an inhumane way to treat uh, a group of students who are major contributors to your college they're major contributors in terms of being great students even before COVID, our goal was to look for ways to make college more affordable uh, because in all seriousness what what is what is happening is that the median income of african african-american families in this country is about fifty six thousand mm-hmm. dollars that's about what room and board costs at a school like spelman college and spelman is cheaper than most elite private universities and so, in, 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 in fact, higher education has almost priced, not almost, has priced itself out of the reach of many of our families. And that concerned us greatly. And so we said, you know, we felt we had a moral responsibility to find a way, to look for ways that Spelman could keep, the, keep its tuition flat or keep the rate of increase extremely low And the only way to do that was to bring in new income on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can do great fundraising and we do uh, great fundraising and that's been a wonderful success, but we needed another source of reliable, predictable earned income for the college. Have you looked at the numbers or have you seen numbers in terms of students transferring from Spelman or simply not coming back with the indications due to the pandemic? So that, fascinating thing, Rose, is that we, and I look, I check these numbers almost every day. I get a computer uh, notification. Our deposits for first years are up 13% over last year. Mm-hmm. Our registration numbers for returning students are up significantly over last year. And I, of course, that could all change. You know, things could change. This virus could take a a, 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 a chain, swerve and go on a different course or anything can happen. But right now, at this moment, our enrollment looks pretty steady. Mm-hmm. And we're going to do everything we can in terms of financial aid, in terms of support, as I said, discounting the two, whatever we can to try to help our students as I said before, kind of cross this bridge over troubled waters. We're, we still believe deeply this is temporary, longer than we expect it, mm-hmm. but still a temporary situation. We've been focusing on the students. Let's talk about faculty and staff. How will you all manage the flow on campus for your faculty and your instructors? Our faculty and staff at Spelman were heroic. They, they made that transition in the blink of an eye um, they went through training in the spring. They have undergone over 200 of them have undergone training again in the summer um, and have really made every effort 
to uh, understand the difference between in-person instruction and online instruction so that we can give our students the best quality online education possible. Our staff, we have a student success center that's run by an extraordinary young woman named Jennifer Johnson. Uh, she is completely rethinking how we need to organize our student success infrastructure now that we're online. Mm -hmm. um, thinking about maybe having success teams, that is breaking down the student population into smaller groups that could have a mentor and a staff advisor or a faculty advisor so that everybody feels as though they have an affinity group or a home within a home, you know, since they're not here on campus. Well, you know, something that a lot of institutions do, and I know Spelman has their own program, usually have like a big sister for incoming first-year students. And we all know that first year of college and all you're excited about all the activities. Will there be any activities for the, the students to participate in? And how will you manage that? So I, I, I sat in uh, on a, a really fun event on Friday. Uh, when I first heard that we were going to have this, you know, you know, complete evacuation of campus and everybody was going to have to be online, a faculty member came to me and said, you know what, I'd like to offer some virtual internships. I said, great, here's some funding for you to offer 40 virtual internships in data science. So here's how she organized it. You get your instruction in data science from a computer science faculty member. Mm -hmm. You're assigned a project, depending on whether you're in humanities, the arts, social science, or science. And you and a group of students have to solve a problem, right? So, so, so now you have teams, right? Mm -hmm. You had a big class, now you're broken into teams to solve your problem. And it's got to use data science to, to solve it. But you also get a whole module on what careers you can go into if you are have mastered data science as an English major, as a biology major, or as a history major, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then the final piece, which I loved, there was a whole section on contemplative practices, how to take care of yourself, how to pace yourself, how to, you know, really um, get yourself in the right headspace. Mm -hmm. It was a resounding success. I went to the I went to the final presentation and they were all done as teams pitching their projects. The projects were phenomenal. Mm -hmm. The students were just glowing. And there must have been a dozen faculty who ended up participating. And you really felt, even though it was all virtual, you really felt that you were part of something special. And I said, I wrote to everybody afterwards and I said, this is a great model. Mm -hmm. We have to replicate this throughout the college. Our students solved real world problems. They were mastering data science. Three of them got jobs because the speakers who came to speak to them were so impressed. They <laughs> that is all right. I said, That's a winner. So, I, so what I love is that when you have disruption, you give yourself permission to do things differently. We had never done this before, mm -hmm. ever. Um, but you give yourself permission to do things differently, to think differently, to try things out you would never have tried uh, if, this, if things were just going status quo. And I think that's, the, that's where we have to seize the advantage here. Mm -hmm. Dr. Campbell, as we prepare to wrap up, I want to talk about phase three, and I know that's beginning with next year, but how optimistic are you about phase three? You know, we have great leadership in this city. You know, I, I think we have, uh, I think we have leadership that is really working with the data, working with the science, and really leading this city to a place where we can get to in January and February, a place where the city will be able to gradually reopen. And, and I think when we get there, I think I, I'm very optimistic that we'll be able to implement phase three, which is to bring our seniors back. Mm -hmm. So about 50% of our student population will be back. And then in the fall, 100%. So you're following the city and not necessarily the state? In you... my humble opinion. <laughs> That's why I you're on the program, for your opinion. In my humble opinion, I believe that the city has taken the wiser choice. 
I think there have been, I, I, I feel, and I participated, and I say that as someone who has participated in the um, Atlanta, City of Atlanta task force, and I have listened to the very careful analyses that they have done of other cities, of other states, of other ways of reopening and other patterns and models. And, and so they are, I feel very confident that our city has informed itself with those models that work. And so I, I'm, I'm basing this um, almost exclusively on the data that has been presented and, and what I see is the result. And I think, I think the leadership in this city has, has really been very careful and conservative and that's been, a, that's a good thing. Finally, President Campbell, we both know the plight of some HBCUs, a lot of HBCUs in this nation. Do you have some concerns that because of this pandemic, for some, this is going to really impact them? It might cause them to either go online full time or for some consolidation or just simply shutting their doors? So I think, Rose, the, the reality is that throughout the country, um, there, there are about 50 colleges and universities that are very wealthy. They have multi-billion dollar endowments and they'll be just fine. The other 3,000 plus all have vulnerabilities. All of us have some level of vulnerability. And the real question is, um, who is going to take advantage of those vulnerabilities to do to make the changes in their business model and the way they do business and the way they educate students uh, in a way that's going to enable them to survive. And, and, and I will bet that some of those who are hit the hardest may end up being some of the most innovative. Mm -hmm. I look at examples like Southern New Hampshire University mm -hmm. that's headed now by, or has been headed for, for years by Paul LeBlanc. And when he became president, he was facing a huge deficit. It looked, looked like it was curtains for the college. He completely turned that around by expanding into online so that they maintained their 3,000 student residential campus and now have 135,000 students they serve online in a way that completely funds that residential campus. So, I think this is a moment to be seized by colleges and universities. And I think there are lots of HBCUs out there that will do just that. Are you all prepared, or not only just in terms of infrastructure, but keeping faculty and staff? If you all had to go 100% online, you feel confident that you could do that for a year, a complete year? I, I feel confident that we could. It will not be easy. Mm -hmm. And we will have to sacrifice and give up a lot of the amenities that we enjoy that support us as faculty and students and staff. But I think we have the kind of community we all, although it will be difficult for us financially, we have so much extraordinary human and intellectual capital here at Spelman. And we have a community that is so devoted and dedicated to the mission that I have every confidence that we will find our way through. Right now, I'm still very optimistic. Will this be part of your message to the first year students? Because you usually address them. So I was listening, yes, I was listening to a, uh, actually an NPR interview of three of our students. Uh, one was a Latinx uh, student from the West Coast. One was a, 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 a white student who goes to Notre Dame, who's in the Northeast. And one was our student, uh, Shaquavia, uh, from Mississippi, from rural Mississippi. And I listened to her voice, and I listened to what she had to say about Spelman. And she said, Spelman cares about us. They're not bringing us all back on campus because they recognize that our community, the Black community, is especially threatened by this virus. And we understand that we just are going to tough it out for this year, and we're going to make it work. And I just wanted to jump through that radio <laughs> station and give her a big hug, because that's exactly the spirit that I want to introduce to our, our first year students and just rally our continuing students around. 
Spelman College President Dr. Mary Schmidt Campbell on the institution's phase reopening this fall semester. President Campbell, as always, thank you for taking the time. You're on campus. I know you take a lot of walks over there. It will be a little bit different this fall, but thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Rez. I, I love being here. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. At 80 years old, Representative John Lewis is known as the most prominent figures, one of the most prominent figures, the Civil Rights Movement. Yeah, we know he was born in rural Alabama and the son of sharecroppers, but Congressman Lewis, he's endured a lot. He's also been called, quote, the conscience of the U.S. Congress and has dedicated his life to building what he calls the beloved community. Well, now there's a new documentary that aims to tell his story, blending some archival footage and stories from the 1960s to now. We will march with the spirit of love and with the spirit of dignity that we have drawn here today. The whole time he was in the movement, it was frightening, knowing the danger, knowing what could happen. You cannot replace a John Lewis. He's the most courageous person I've ever met. Too many people struggled and died to make it possible for every American to exercise their right to vote. He challenges the conscience of the Congress. Bring common sense gun control legislation to the House floor. Forty years later, John Lewis continues to inspire us. Are you with me? Let me hear you. Wow. It's called John Lewis. Good trouble. And joining me now to share all of this and how this came to be, director Don Porter, who in her own regard is an award-winning documentary filmmaker. Don, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Love being in Atlanta. All right. I can't wait to dig more into this, but I always like to begin when I speak with a creative. I always like to get their backstory. And I love to begin with this, which is tell me about your philosophy when it comes to the art of storytelling and the intersection of of the two. Oh, um, you know, my background is a little unusual. Um, I began my career as a lawyer. And uh, I worked for a firm, Um, I did litigation, I worked for a lot of newspapers, defending freedom of the press, that kind of thing. And, um, but one of the things that you do, if you really think about it as a lawyer, is you make complicated things easy to understand. Mm -hmm. And you have to have, you know, a clear way of expressing your message. So uh, as a very young lawyer, I took a lot of depositions and depositions really is just listening. It's just listening to people really, really carefully and closely. So from there, I went to ABC News. I worked for, um, I watched producers and editors in edit rooms, and I saw them do the same thing. You know, at 9.30 in the morning, we'd be covering a breaking news story, and by 6 o'clock that night, it was on television. And I saw the power of story. Um, so, but, you know, over time, I wasn't seeing stories about people that look like me. Mm-hmm. I, I'm an African-American woman and, and I felt like, uh, I wanted to add my voice to that. So, so for me, um, the art of storytelling is really about centering the subject, about getting to the point where they can tell their own story. It's not what I think of them. It's what they think of them. And so it's, how do you create the environment where they can tell us what we need to know about them, where we can really listen. I always say that when I'm putting together a feature or when I'm talking to young journalists about how do you tell a story, and I always say you have to let it breathe, you know? Let it breathe. (laughs) I am all about the breath. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, I um, have worked with, uh, I I like to work with the same people as much as possible, and I've worked with uh, the woman who edited this film is a woman named Jessica Congdon. She also uh, edited the film about Dolores Huerta. Um, Mm -hmm. So she really had a good sense of the rhythm. Um, You know, she's, she's a musical person, but that breath, that is the most important thing that we can do. I think when people come to documentary, they're coming for a deeper story. And so it's not the quick, 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 you know, like our lives are so fast. Like I, I really enjoy just what you're saying. Like, how can you sink into a story, you know? And the story of someone like John Lewis, there's a lot there. So take us through the time when you, you realize you're going to get this opportunity to 
share his story through his lens. Yeah, it was it was really exciting. I had just done a four part series for Netflix about Bobby Kennedy mm-hmm. and um, Congressman Lewis told a story that I had not heard before, which is that he was the person who organized the rally for Bobby Kennedy when he was running for president. He organized a rally in Indianapolis. It was on the day that Dr. King was murdered. And so uh, there was a lot of discussion among Kennedy's aides about, was it safe? Would there be riots? Um, Mm -hmm. Could he address the crowd? And a very young John Lewis in his 20s said, Senator, you must speak to the people. He was you know, speaking to a black audience. And it's well known as one of Kennedy's most affecting speeches. It's the only time he spoke about his brother, John F. Kennedy being murdered mm-hmm. at the hands of a white man. Um, and so I, when Congressman Lewis told that story to us, I thought there are so, there's so much more to this man than that moment on the bridge. And, uh, you know, like this is the moment to hear about that. So CNN Films came to me and, and uh, said, would you be interested in doing, you know, something about Congressman Lewis? And I was like, uh-huh. <laughs> are you kidding me? So, are you kidding me? Um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was pretty much a dream come true. And I think the Congressman, you know, you've mentioned he's been on your show. He, he loves, you know, uh, being in public and giving interviews and all of that. But I felt like um, he was really ready to tell his story start to finish. He's mm-hmm. a very humble person. And so, um, you know, I think he, you know, approaching his 80th birthday, he was ready for that full look back. He had done a few, mm-hmm. um, you know, there've been a few longer films, but with someone like Congressman Lewis, there's always room for more. And first of all, you had some amazing archival footage, some that I had never seen. And then, but we feel like we've seen everything as it relates to the civil rights movement. Were you surprised how much footage was out there that nobody had really seen that you sort of unearthed? You know, um, because of my experience with the Bobby Kennedy series, I, we knew that there was so much more. And that also had been one of my frustrations, you know, from with a background in journalism, um, knowing that the, 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 our telling of the civil rights movement has flattened. It has become slavery ends, Dr. King marches, mm-hmm. Barack Obama is elected. And we see now the danger of not filling in the details about the work and the struggle and the sacrifice and the intention and strategy used in order to get to those achievements, but also the need to be vigilant and and continue working. So we had unearthed, I work with the same archivist. He had been kind of slowly collecting these just gems. Um, And so by the time CNN came to us, we it had already been kind of rattling around in my mind. And one of the things I really, really wanted to do with this film was to back us up from that moment on the bridge. So, mm. you know, to show like what these young people, they were, you know, 19 years old, Congressman Lewis sits, organizes with Diane Nash and the other leaders. They organize uh, with, you know, some of the people on the ground in Nashville to desegregate, um, you know, the, that downtown area. And, Seeing that, I wanted to show how much planning, intelligence, and political strategy went into that. They did not just show up mm-hmm. on, you know, at those lunch counters. They had a plan. They had a process. They worked it through, and they executed it beautifully. So that was part of the intention is showing showing that. And, and uh, you know, that footage is really moving. It, it feels to me like um, th- this is what, you know, Black people have inherited this organi- this organizing. We all know of like the links or like, you know, <laughs> black women who, if they wanted to get to the moon faster, they should have called like <laughs> some black grandmothers <laughs> because they can organize everything. Yeah. But these children learned at the, at the feet of their grandmothers um, and they learned how to organize. So, um, you know, that it was important to me to show that, that work. And you also, intertwined with the archival footage and you have some interviews seeing the late U.S. Representative Elijah Cummings you know who's who's since passed on um and seeing someone like him you know talk about John Lewis and his relationship with John Lewis you know I I well I can start with what it means for me Mm -hmm. um because uh Representative Cummings that was the first interview we did 
And we did not realize at the time that his health was so poor. Um, so he he was in the middle of, uh, you know, it was really, really busy. Like his workload was just astounding, the, the amount of, of complicated issues he was dealing with. And he walked across the Capitol into the office to do our, our interview. And he sat down and he gave us quite a bit of time um, to do this interview. And he was just so um, full of life and he uh, just a master storyteller. But my favorite part was um, he, you know, he, he said, well, you know, I'm always mistaken for John. Yeah. And I said, Congressman, are you telling me you impersonate John Lewis? <laughs> yeah. And he just gave the biggest laugh and then he tells that story about he doesn't want to disappoint people who agree. So he's taken a lot Such of pictures, pictures. <laughs> pretending he's John Lewis, you know, yeah. because people are like, you know, this is the famous congressman. And then he says the line that still just, you know, pierces my heart, which is, um, but he's uh, happy to be mistaken for a great man. Mm -hmm. And of course, we know that he is, he was a great man. So um, I really love, you know, this, this uh, opportunity for black men to show their love, affection and admiration for one another. This is not, um, and uh, Representative Clyburn does the same thing mm -hmm. and Sheila Jackson Lee does the same thing. So, you know, I, I feel like it's um, as our, our young people are coming up and, and figuring out their organizing strategy. Um, there's a lot of competition that happens, you know, and people vying for the center. And the thing about Congressman Lewis is he, he wasn't trying to be the leader of anything. He was just really good at it. <laughs> and so, um, you know, uh, Andy Young told us like, John was always hanging back. And then people kept pushing him forward and he, you know, would answer the call. But that interview is, um, you know, one of my favorite of all the interviews I've ever done in my whole life. Was there someone that you wanted to get that you couldn't? Um, we were trying really hard to get President Obama and he was traveling and, and uh, we, we couldn't work that out. So but we found enough footage to to do. Um, there were also some um people who were in the movement who I would have liked to have the opportunity to to speak with. You know, you 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 have a schedule, you have a budget, you have I live in California, you know, like, you know, all of those um, things. It's kind of amazing that any movie actually gets gets made. <laughs> um, but um, we were we were just really grateful. You know, uh, Secretary Clinton gave us an interview, mm -hmm. Bill Clinton gave us an interview. So um, we were like, we have an embarrassment of riches and, uh, you know, just, but there, there could be, you know, there, since the movies come out now, everybody's like, Oh, I have a story. I'm like, where were y'all when I was? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I called your office. <laughs> I called your office. So, um, so we're grateful to the people who, who figured it out. Um, and then I invite the next filmmaker do those interviews, mm -hmm. you know, like like nobody occupies the field in film or radio or television. They're, these lives are rich and, and full and, and they deserve their stories interpreted by many people. So when it came down to editing, then I imagine there was a lot that was that was left out. Um, there was. <laughs> we started with a three hour cut. <laughs> That's, um, but you know what, Donna? I gotta admit, that's pretty good. That's not bad. That's not right? bad. It's yeah. not bad. And then, um, you know, we got it down to two, and then I was ready to fight. You know, I was yeah. like, I cannot cut a frame. Um, so, so you know, there's there's more to be said. I will say that. Um, but I, I also felt like, you know, we we did our best to do the essence of the story. I wanted to tell, which is I really wanted to focus on his current activity mm -hmm. on, you know, we know him uh, from that moment on the bridge. Um, we know, you know, some people know, some people don't know, though, that he was the youngest speaker at the March on Washington mm -hmm. um, or that, you know, he was instrumental in organizing and, you know, the, the freedom rides. I mean, John Lewis just he just kept walking into the fire mm -hmm. and, and, you know, seeing that and putting it all together, but also understanding how that early life influenced who he is today, you know? So when he speaks to uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or the squad, 
they they listen with a different ear because mm -hmm. they know he comes from those activist streets. He understands them. They, they share a DNA. So I wanted to focus too on you know the legacy that he's leaving to our to our young people, which is so great. What's next for you? Give our listeners a little preview. We won't, uh, we won't tell I, anybody. <laughs> don't tell anybody except for all of Metro Atlanta. Um, I am, no, I'm very proud of this next project. Um, I, I'm finishing, you hear that knock wood? I am finishing um, a, a feature film for Focus Features about President Obama's White House photographer, Pete Sousa, oh. who took two million photographs and was with President Obama you know, pretty much every day of his eight years in service. So, you know, they tell a story about not just President Obama, but about the office of the presidency and what it takes to be a great leader um, and, and how serious the issues are. But they also show a caring, empathetic, um, curious and uh, strong leadership style that uh, I, I think we will all, well, I will say I am missing desperately and uh, hope to see see again. So uh, we are very excited about that. Focus Features is really putting a lot of muscle behind this film and we will release it before the election. So everyone can see what they're missing. When we started this conversation, I asked you about your approach as a storyteller. So now when you look at John Lewis, Good Trouble, do you try to give an assessment? Do you reflect, I could have done this, I should have did that? or the product, it is what it is, and now it's left up to the viewer for what, whatever their takeaway is gonna be? Um, it's a combination of both. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I am very much of the feeling that I, I present what I can is, is do, you know, as well as I can, and I'm happy whatever message you take from the film, I am happy. If it struck you, if it made you think, if it made you feel, then that's a success. But there's always more you could have done. We could have cut this film, you know, nine ways till Sunday. So um, I'm I'm very much a oh I wish I'd you know kind of person. So I, I'm working on that in therapy. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but that's the arts, right? Yeah. Is is mm -hmm. and that is the beauty of creativity. Is there an infinite numbers of ways to do X, Y, or Z? And so I'm just part glad and, you know, to be part of a creative community where where I get to to, you know, throw my hat in the ring and, and say what I have to say and then, you know, let people take it from there. So but I do hope people will. I've heard a lot of people say they've watched it with their family. They watch with their kids, um, you know, that that one thing we can all take from John Lewis is an example of a, po a, a positive person in government. They are there. They are, there are people who are working for the right reasons, and I hope that this will uh, inspire people's faith in our government once again. Don Porter, director of the film, John Lewis, Good Trouble. There is a one-hour webinar coming up for those who want to learn more about this documentary. It's actually being hosted by the Atlanta Press Club this coming Tuesday, July 14th at 2 p.m. It's free to those who register online. Don, I always enjoy talking to another creative, another storyteller. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for uh, having me here. This has been a real pleasure. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE. 